Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the Internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, guys. It is Thursday, July 9th, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. I hope you've been having a fantastic week so far. It is almost over. Tomorrow is Friday. Guys, thanks for tuning in all week. We've been here all week with brand new interviews. We'll be here tonight and tomorrow as well. Uh, If you've been listening all week, you know these are all pre-taped interviews because I was supposed to be on my way to Palm Springs for the big gay road trip and four weeks of live shows from the Indulge Resort. But with the COVID outbreak in Southern California right now really bad, we had to postpone that. So I'm at home, and we have to uh, play all these great pre-taped interviews I did last week that we're going to play while I was on the road. Now we're playing one here at home, so couple of great things for you. If you missed last night's episode, we did a Music Monday on a Wednesday. What? Yeah, you're right. We did it, and we're proud of it. We usually do music on Mondays, as you know, but I had some great interviews last week, some some amazing artists. So we did an extra Music Monday last night on Wednesday. We started out like we do every Wednesday with our buddies J&J Buzz, Joss and Jeff doing their Pop Culture Minute. They had a great little chat there. Of course, Josh and Jeff are cute as heck uh, fiancés in Nashville, Tennessee, that are here every Wednesday with the Pop Culture Minute. And then our first singer-songwriter was direct from Australia. I interviewed him via Skype in Australia, Ben Hazelwood. He was one of the finalists on The Voice Australia and has an amazing voice. New song came out. And we talked to him about that last night. And then we had another great group. We had Sarah and Frankie of Unsung Lillian. These are two UK-born girls, wife and wife, that uh, have some amazing music. And they came on to talk about their newest music last night. So we had a great time. If you missed it at all, be sure to go to Left to Straight Show Archives and Check it out. Subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. All you got to do is hit the little subscribe button. You'll get a notification whenever we do a new episode, and that is usually Monday through Friday. And if you listen to it, great. If it's not any interviews you want to listen to, don't worry about it. Don't listen to it and wait for the next notification. If it is an interview that you really like, though, I would appreciate it. If you go give it a five-star review. That way, other people will start finding. The more reviews we have, the better our search rankings for the podcast, and more people can find interviews with these great people that I'm able to talk to every day. So I appreciate that. 
Tonight, in just a couple minutes, I have another great show for you. We're going to start off first with Jacob Talego. He is our brand new Mental Health Minute special correspondent from right here in Youngstown, Ohio. As you all know, we had Stephanie Schroeder on for the last few Thursdays of the Mental Health Minute, but Stephanie was in New York City and, of course, off work because of corona. She is now back at work, and, of course, we know that she worked at a homeless shelter there, very busy there, plus she does all of her editing for her books and everything, so she is taking some time off. Hopefully we'll have her on from time to time to give us a little insight. But Jacob has taken over. He's actually a licensed psychotherapist here in Boardman, Ohio, which is right next door to where I am at here in Youngstown area. So he's going to do his very first uh, Mental Health Minute. Of course, we couldn't arrange it well because he's been so busy with clients, everything going on with COVID, that he had to call in from his car. So the audio is not as great as it usually will be, but we had a good chat with him tonight. So I'll have him on in just a couple of seconds for our Thursday Mental Health Minute. And then two fantastic interviews. Up first, if you like magic, and why shouldn't you? And if you like comedy, and how dare you if you don't, we are combining it. My very first guest, Justin Willman, will be on the show. He is the star creator and magician in charge of Magic for Humans. It's on its third season on Netflix. It is one of the greatest shows, guys. If you like magic, if you like a little fun, he is amazing, the things he does on that show. It's just, uh, oh, I can't wait till I can see him in person when he gets out be out traveling again. He has the most adorable little kid, Jackson. We had a good talk the other day. So up first, it's going to be Justin Willman from Magic for Humans on Netflix. And then in the second hour, we're going to talk to Britt East. And Britt is a fantastic author. And he's just he's wrote um, a fantastic book we're going to talk about. It came out last week, and it's all uh, a gay man's guide to life, and has great tips, everything from money management to health to sex, everything else. He covers it all uh, from a, a good perspective from his background. So we're going to have both those interviews on for you in just a little bit. But let's go ahead get into a little bit of news that I wanted to talk about, and then we'll play our Mental Health Minute with Jacob here. Uh, If you haven't heard on the news today, two kind of big announcements. Uh, One is that they have their new Batwoman. You guys know I'm a huge superhero geek, and so I love all my CW shows, my superhero shows on CW. Well, Ruby Rose, who played Batwoman the first season, the first and only season of Batwoman last year, decided that she was not going to be back for season two. It was a rougher schedule than she thought. Um, she didn't really realize the what the time commitment was going to be and originating a role, especially a superhero role when you're in like every shot, is pretty tough. So she decided she wasn't going to go back this year. So they put a casting call out. And they have their new Batwoman for season two. So that's exciting. Her name is Javisha Leslie. I hope I say that right. Or Javicia, Javicia Leslie. She's going to be the very first black actor to portray the Batwoman character. She is uh, actually bisexual in real life and we're playing the lesbian Batwoman that we've come to know and love on the show. And uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. So we have an actual LGBTQ member of our uh, 
community, which Ruby Rose was also in the role of Batwoman. So be the first black, still lesbian, uh, Batwoman. So that was kind of exciting casting news today. I'm excited about that. And then in very sad news today, um, we have reports that Naya Rivera, who was on Glee, of course, she played uh, lesbian Santana on Glee, uh, is missing and presumed dead on a river in County, which is where I'm from. My brother is actually a Ventura County Sheriff, you guys all may know. But uh, her boat was found. She rented a pontoon boat with her little four-year-old son on Wednesday, did not make it back in the little hours she rented it. So they went out searching for her. They found the boat with her four-year-old son wearing a life jacket and sleeping in the boat. But Naya was nowhere to be found. There was a life jacket in the boat, an adult-sized life jacket in the boat. And so they went on a search and rescue mission yesterday and could not find her. They went on another search and rescue this morning, and it's now into recovery. They have not found her. She's missing and presumed dead. So Naya Rivera from Glee, uh, leaving this precious little four-year-old son, who she shared custody with her ex-husband, who uh, was seen with him today, which is great. But, man, you know I love me some Glee, one of my favorite shows. They have not had luck on that show. I mean, Corey Monteith um, died of an overdose of drugs. Mark Salling uh, went to prison for some sexual shenanigans. It's just been, of course, we have Leah Michelle that's been outed this summer for her pretty bad behavior on set to a lot of the co-stars and guest stars that were on the show. So that was kind of a jinxy kind of thing. It's really weird, too, because, you know, I've had the amazing Jenna Ushkowitz on the show twice, who played Tina on Glee. And I had uh, Kevin McHale, who played Artie on once with Jenna last season. And you come on once a year, and it's time for me to be, I've been wanting to reach out to her for the last month or so to get her to come on. And I just haven't done it yet. And now I don't, I feel really goofy reaching out to her in this time that's really sad. She's like, oh, I want her to come on because of Naya, which I don't. But I just want her and Kevin and the whole cast to know that we are thinking of them for this tragic loss of Naya. Um, I don't think it's going to have a good outcome. There's always a possibility. To, uh, so thoughts and prayers for her four-year-old son, for ex-husband and the cast of Glee who will be missing her, I'm sure. So... Jenna uh, and Kevin, I'm sorry for your loss. They have an amazing podcast called Showmance that we talk about every year when they're on, along with their other projects. So very sad news indeed for that. But let's go ahead and move on. Let's go ahead and bring on our very first Mental Health Minute with Jacob Talego from right here in Northeast Ohio. Like I said, the audio is not that great. He had to call in from his car today. We will have it better in the coming weeks. But I'm just glad he was able to come on and talk to us today. So we'll play that. And after that, we are going to go immediately to song. And when we come back from that, it's going to be Justin Willman, magician extraordinaire from Magic for Humans on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, watch it tonight. It's an amazing show. So 
Here we go. Jacob Plager, listen to Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Hello, welcome everyone to the Mental Health Minute. My name is Jacob Talego. I'm a psychotherapist and CEO of Mind and Body Counseling Solutions in Boardman, Ohio. I'm glad to get started with you guys and chatting with you every other Thursday here on Mental Health Minute. I have some good things to share, some new things to share, and uh, I am here to heal. So that's really what I'm all about. So on a good topic that I wanted to start with, tonight is uh, coping with COVID, as I call it. No pun intended in that name. I just figured I'd, why not add a little humor to something very serious that we all have to cope and deal with, you know? And just like everyone says when we we talk about our routines and coping with the COVID-19, follow what the government is saying. That's, That's my number one advice from any mental health expert. Listen to what people are saying and respond accordingly. You know, wear the face mask when you're going out into public, socially distance yourself. And the key thing in here is you don't have to agree with anything, but we just have to learn to accept things. And I know that that's very difficult for all of us to do, especially in this chaotic world where we're always worrying about things like money and, you know, whatever else we need to get by. So that is the number one thing. Listen to what's going on in the world. Follow the news. I mean, you have to be careful with the news. If you're anything like me, it probably makes you anxious. (laughs) You know, so you have to be careful with the news. But listen to what people are saying. That's the number one thing. And also, uh, what are the professionals saying? That's another big topic. Like all the doctors are are giving, which he's doing a great job at telling us what to do, what not to do. You need to follow all those restrictions from the medical professionals. And I know a lot of us have difficulty wearing the mask, and this is not my scope of practice. I'm not going to try to speak about medical things. But if you're having difficulties, as myself, as one of those individuals, speak to your doctor. They will figure out a way for you to cope to where you're still still adhering to the policies that are being developed as we continue to cope with the corona. Uh, Well, a couple more broader things I want to talk about real quickly is uh, using your common sense, maintaining healthy habits and hygiene, washing your hands, using hand sanitizer. That's all beneficial to your mental health. That's all also very beneficial to your physical health. And things and, and those topics are kind of intertwined for this discussion today as well. So, yes, wash your hands, go to the bathroom, use hand sanitizer. A lot of agencies, including myself, are creating their own hand sanitizer blends that kind of coincide with their whole scope of practice. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're providing hand sanitizer. In general, hand sanitizer is becoming more readily available. At first, it was a very distinguished, you couldn't find it on the stores. And it is very effective. Again, I'm not speaking from a doctor's perspective. I'm only speaking from a mental health perspective. It also does numerous amount of things when you smell it and when you put it on your skin for your brain, and it really does, it helps with de-stressing across the board. So not only does hand sanitizer, and I could speak on a dead rope about this, but not only does sanitizer work physically for coping with the corona, it also helps mentally. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And uh, a couple other more LGBT-specific things, tips to be concerned of. A lot of people don't speak about this. Well, 
What does it mean? Who cares if I'm gay? I'm still going to do the same thing when I'm coping with the corona, whether I'm gay or straight. And yeah, maybe there's a valid argument there, and I'm not here to question that argument. I'm only here to say there are a couple specific things within our community that may need to be addressed. And it's very common that we see, for example, homelessness. Very broad. It's very much prevalent in the bigger cities. I will say that. I, I don't know a lot of that research off the top of my hand, head, but uh, yes, homelessness is a big thing. So when you're telling people you need to stay at home, you know, a lot of these gay individuals, and I, I, and again, I know it's not just the LGBT community. It's across the board, but specifically in our community, people are afraid to go home. You know, I could get into a long conversation about this, but people are afraid to go home with the coming out process they're faced with in their life and all these other minority things that are already stressing out their life. And then you add, oh, by the way, go home and stay home. You know, that that can create a unique stress level for some people. So we as a community have to be aware of that, first and foremost. We may not experience it ourselves, gratefully if not, but... We will have individuals, particularly younger individuals, going through this. So we have to be aware of that. And also, we also have to be aware of what our specific unique groups are doing to help each other. For example, there's tons of LGBT community resources all throughout all states. Particularly in our state, there's a couple primary resources in the area that if you need help, that's where you go. So that's specific. That's very significant to mention when we're coping with the corona and, and the other crises that we occur. Reach out to your local groups that already provide emergency services for these types of situations. And the LGBT community, yeah, we still have a long way to go, but we're making segue in this area. We're, we're providing support, and it's starting to become prevalent. So we're getting there. So, yeah, pay attention to that. Also... Another big kind of topic in the LGBT community is socialization and social events. This is kind of my area of expertise. I've uh, done a lot of extensive research in the history of coming out and the development uh, across time. And what I found is that socialization is key in that area. And so what I mean by that is that can cause a lot of disruption right now, especially with the bars being closed and people being forced to stay at home, that takes away our socialization. That takes away what some call a coping skill, to just be able to go out and have a cocktail with a friend. Well, that's now taken away. So my way of coping with that is let's bring it electronically. And, the, and this is not my idea, of course. This, you know, this idea was chaotic and spread throughout social media faster than I could say coping with corona. You know, and, and which is beautiful, by the way. People are taking the drag shows online, and they're doing auctions online. They're doing all these different things. They're using what we got and making something good out of it. I like that. That's progress to me. We need to keep doing that, keep staying connected socially. The most important thing that we can do to cope with the corona here is support each other, love each other, smile at each other. Those are free still today in this world, believe it or not. Smiles and hugs. Although we might not want to hug each other right now. We might want to stick with elbows for 
<laughs> you know, and, 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 until the future. But that's important to say. And it's important to ex- express your emotions about what's going on. Tell people, I'm scared. Of, sometimes doing that just gives you a little bit more perspective of what to do. And sometimes it can help. So those are my wisdom tips for the week. I hope I'm not running out of time or close to that. I hope you guys were interested in what I had to say, and I will have more to say here shortly in a couple weeks. You can find me at Mind and Body Counseling Solutions. We're at 5621 Market Street, Boardman, Ohio. Our email address is mindandbodycounseling at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Facebook. We have both my individual and my company is on there. And that is under Jacob Telego. That's T-E-L-E-G-O. You can find that on Facebook. Also with Mind and Body Counseling Solutions. And now I'm really old because I'm going to say I have an Instagram, but I don't know what it's called. (laughs) So I don't know how to look that up. But we'll look that up before next time and let you guys know. I'm easy to find. You can look me up, Jacob Telego or Mind and Body Counseling Solutions. That's how to get a hold of me. Thank you once again. You hold my heart inside your hands, you're magic. You make me crazy, your touch it makes me lose my head. It's tragic.
That brings me to my next guest. He is the host of the hit Netflix series Magic for Humans, now in its third season. And since I just happen to be human myself, I thought it'd be very appropriate to have him on the show. He's appeared on some of your favorite shows from Fallon to Conan, Ellen to Clarkson. His online videos have been seen over 100 million times. And he one time performed at the White House for the Obama family, which is probably obvious because it was for Trump. I probably wouldn't have had him on. But let's go ahead and welcome to the show for the very first time, the very handsome, the very talented, Mr. Justin Willman. Justin, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. That was a fantastic intro. You should we should you should come with me everywhere. Thanks for coming. There you me go. Up. The opening great. act. There you go. Yes, I have the face exactly. for radio. I'm not a good opening act, but uh, well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll do the announcement for you. If I can stand behind the curtain with the microphone, I'll I'll be there for you, dude. There you go. How's everything going in beautiful downtown Southern California? You and the family holding up okay? We're holding up. We're here in the burbs. Uh, I'm in, uh, you know, a nice little quarantine pod with my wife and our 18-month-old son and my wife's mom who joined early on in the quarantine. So we're like, you know, we're one wacky relative short of a reality show. But we're, we're good. There we're you go. Down. We're healthy. We're keeping it secure. Uh, we're, we're waiting it out. There you go. Mom, son, and mother-in-law. Um, I'm, I guess you're glad you have a magic bunker hidden somewhere. That's kind of nice. It's got to be for both you and the I wife. I do. I'm in my magic bunker right now. I'm in my, my little magic bunker. It's about 10 minutes away from the house, and I'm very grateful. I just have a place to, like, a reason to get in the car and drive somewhere and arrive at a place where nobody else has been, and there's not a screaming child at any – or no, no screaming human whatsoever except for me, which is nice. There you go. And I bet the wife on occasion will send you to said magic bunker. Just to, you're, She's probably not used to being home so much. <laughs> I know. This is not what she signed up for. You know, normally I'm on, I'm on tour <laughs> uh, or shooting a show. So, you know, she kind of, we, you, we, we get to miss one another. So we don't have that, which is a, a shame, you know. So there's a, missing, missing your, your partner is a big part of a relationship, I think, uh, at least right. ours. So we have to come up with ways to miss each other, at least for a half hour or something. There you go. I like it. Well, first time on the show, Justin, talk a little bit about, about your background. Where did you grow up and what kind of a kid were you? You know, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. So I'm a good little Midwestern kid. I would hope to say in the good ways as opposed to, you know, some of the, <laughs> uh, you know, our, uh, our our state has various uh, political viewpoints and various social viewpoints. And I like to think that I, uh, you know, grew up in, in a pocket of open-mindedness and uh, supportiveness and it served me well. You know, I, I started doing magic when I was about 12 years old. I broke my arms when I was a kid riding my bike, wearing rollerblades at the same time, like an idiot. It's a long story. And uh, <laughs> my doctor, reco- 
Yeah, my doctor recommended I learn card tricks as physical therapy to get my dexterity back, and that, that that's what kind of led me to magic, and it was the first thing I was ever good at as a kid. So I, I, was, I became obsessed really quick, and, um, you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, in high school, I was very much a, uh, a click hopper. You know, I didn't really have, like, my little niche group of friends. I kind of was, like, right. friendly with all, all, the, all the clicks, you know, and I think I've, I've kind of been that way my whole life, as, whereas I, I don't feel like I fully belong or identify with one specific group. I'm very much a, a little kind of a chameleon or an ambassador from one to the other, which I think uh, magic really helped with because with magic, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of a chameleon where you infiltrate different groups depending on whatever your whatever the gig is or whatever event you're doing a show at or, you know, as I'm shooting the Netflix show, you know, I'm kind of out in the world with different types of groups of people and I very much enjoy, uh, you know, using magic as a little bit of a passport into a uh, into a group, you know, it's kind of my passport of acceptance. And it's, uh, it's kind of been that way since I was a kid. Well, it does serve you well, my friend, like I said, just in uh, everything that I've seen you in from your shows to the videos I've seen, you're very accessible to everyone, to all the you've been a great ally, the LGBTQ community. There's uh we have gay folks on the show and everything. So it's just, I think it does serve you well to kind of keep that air of mystery about you, but be open to all groups. Because it also helps in bookings too, I can imagine. <laughs> no shortage well, of places to go to that way. That's true. That's true. I, I you know, I think, um, you know, I've dabbled before. Magic for Humans was was kind of a real thing. I, you know, was pitching different shows, and I did a couple pilots for Comedy Central that were failed and didn't get picked up. And one of them was was kind of like a little bit of a political magic show. Where I was trying to solve America's problems with magic and. And I, I it, was, it was a lot of fun, but I felt like it really, you know, it very much divides your audience in that the people who agree with you are rabid about how much they love it. And the people who disagree hate it and they hate you now, you know, and right, right. I, and I felt like I felt like, you know, magic is this universal language. Like there's something about magic that just I think no matter your political background or uh, demographic or kind of just social viewpoint or where you are in the world, like. It, it kind of has an effect on you. It, it translates to you. So I was, I was thinking, you know, as opposed to doing a show that's overtly political, why don't I do a show that is just about like the equality of humanity, that we are all the same, that we all, if you right. treat people well, they treat you well. And I think representation on television is such a strong subliminal, just way to open people's minds. Like by, by treating people who maybe you know, you know, like who, who maybe, uh, you know, the viewers, some of the viewers might be thinking like, okay, well, th- these people are into some weird stuff or whatever, but by me as the <laughs> avatar for the viewer, treating them just like ordinary people and not even drawing attention to whatever might be, you know, uh, eyebrow raising for the viewer, I think kind of subtly has this little political effect. It, it, it just reminds people that, you know, there's really no need to separate you and them. Like we are all in this together. And so I think I found that pocket for myself as a, as a, as a way to, you know, very, very slyly uh, remind people that, um, that, you know, we're all good and hopefully make the world a better place bit by bit. There you go. Indeed. You do it well, my friend. Let's talk about some of that early career. Like I said, I came across you, off air I told you you were hosting on the Food Network for a while and one of my first gigs when my first year doing this I had a lot of food 
foodie contestants on. I didn't have any from any of the war shows, but I had them for like the Food Network star and the things like that. Um, how yeah. is that? How is a hosting gig compared to going out there and doing your own thing and kind of showing off others' work? Was that a fun job? And you did 120 episodes. That's a lot of work. Talk about we that. We did gig. a lot of episodes. You know, it was it was a fun job. I love. I do love hosting things. I feel like. You know, ever since I started doing magic professionally, there was some sort of lateral connection to magic. Magic and hosting just kind of felt a little bit related. I mean, if if nothing else, when I'm hosting, it's kind of like I'm putting on a magic show without the magic. You know, it's kind of just being that jovial Pied Piper of fun and keeping the game moving or the competition moving. So I do love hosting. It was a chance to kind of flex a new uh, a new muscle, and I think everyone involved in the show just couldn't believe the show's success. We were really, you know, it was kind of that early, that early time where competition shows, especially ones that were very specific about one culinary treat, you know, kind of took off and it was very much a right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, I, I loved just being out in the world and having people tell me that, you know, that's the show that they, they, one of the few shows they can watch with their kids or their grandparents or it's, just kind of like their happy place you know you can tune in right. whenever it doesn't matter what happened in the last episode it's kind of like your comfort food so it was really nice to be a part of that you know kind of content for people and talk about some other television appearances i mean besides um us gay's favorite bisexual nick the gardener on ellen you stripped down there to uh your little uh red red shirt, blue suspenders, yellow tie, green shorts, and orange socks. And in season three, you were on a nudist colony. You are brave, my friend. I'm impressed. <laughs> I, it's so funny because I like, uh, you know, I, I do consider myself a modest person, like in real life, but there's something <laughs> about like, if I think a magic, I think if I think a magic trick is going to be funny, if I unexpectedly, you know, have tearaway pants and a tearaway shirt and I'm wearing short shorts now. <laughs> if I think that's a funny reveal, I'm going to do it. If I think it's funny to go to a nudist colony and do magic, which I think it's funny, uh, I'm going to do it. So there's something about this, like, jolt of uh, confidence that comes with the cameras rolling and knowing that, you know, knowing that it's going to be worth it, I'm going to make something entertaining, uh, it, you know, kind of makes me a little, little less modest than I am in real life. But uh, I'm looking at, you know, the Ellen thing. I'm on my wall uh, in my office space where I am right now. The, the trick involves her kind of coloring in this crude drawing of me, and then I'm wearing the clothes that she colored, and I'm looking at the, the little signed drawing that she did that I've got framed on my wall. So it's funny you mentioned that. Nice. I like it. Well, your tricks are just amazing. I call them tricks, but, I mean, your, your appearances on the shows and your magic is really mesmerizing. I mean, I think you blew Kelly Clarkson away the other day, and that was a lot of fun, um, incorporating your son into that. So very cool on that. Let's talk about the Netflix show, though. Three seasons, well done on you for that. Talk about the origins of that. I like your kind of themes you've thrown into each show. Uh, talk about that, how that came together for you. I've been doing magic, you know, since I was 12 or 13, and I, I, I'm 39. I turned 40 too soon. It's weird to even say out loud. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, it took me a while as a magician slash comedian performer to find my voice, you know? And what I mean by that is, like, I went through a lot of phases as a magician where it's kind of like I'm putting on this extra bravado of either – cheesy jokes or wearing a tux and try to be slick and 
and whatever. And I'll watch old tapes of myself and I'll just, I mean, cringe. Like last night I was going, trying to go into an old hard drive and I couldn't even, it was just, I wanted to like throw the computer cause I just couldn't believe me. But I feel like all those little phases are so necessary to eventually get to the point that I think maybe happened five years ago where I realized, you know, like there's a certain comfortability in your own skin and a, a certain once I had a, a enough li- like life experience under my belt, I was married and kind of been through relationships and kind of, you know, had a little more evolving as a human being and ups and downs. Right. So you actually have, have something to talk about that's relatable. You know, when you're, when you're a teenager, you don't have much to talk about other than, you know, acne and, you know, awkwardness. And when you're in college, like I certainly didn't have the confidence to talk about like, you know, fitting in. But, but then as, as an adult, I realized, you know, let's strip away the, 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 the kind of the cheesy veneer and just be real. And, uh, you know, once I was able to kind of be as authentic as I could be, like the, the, the Justin you see on stage or on camera is very similar to the Justin in real life, I think I kind of mm. just had this boost of like, wow, I guess, because people have a BS detector when they watch anything. And I, I feel like what, when someone is actually being authentic and being honest, like, there's something very magnetizing about that. And, you know, I kind of struck upon this idea to do a show that obviously uses magic and comedy, the things that I've been doing forever, but also just has an honest approach to wanting to figure out life's issues, you know, the kind of things that we all struggle right. with. We're all, you know, so I kind of took inventory of my life about, okay, let's see, what, what, what things have I struggled with or I want to know more about? Well, you know, self-control, that's something I struggle with and we all do, uh, you know, guilt, love, of course, uh, technology and fear of it getting out of control. Like, so, so the, the format for the show kind of took shape where every episode I explore a different one of these themes, you know, kind of from a personal first, first person perspective, but very much right. leaving it open for the viewers to, and also not being preachy. Like I don't, you know, it's very unlikely I know more about these things than you do. Uh, but I, I, I think it's kind of fun for us to, learn and examine them together and, and kind of have these little life lessons. And really they're, they're more just little reminders to myself, you know, like if there's anything that I do kind of like, you know, any of the voiceovers in the show as I wrap things up or, or, you know, talk about a a little life lesson that I learned, it's really just me kind of trying to put on paper and remind myself something that I need to remember or work on. And, you know, it's very touching and rewarding that it connects with people. You know, I wanted to make a magic show that's about something more than just magic. So I think magic is such a beautiful art form that invites people in, uh, disarms them, their guard is down, and kind of when your guard is down, your heart is also open. So it's like a Trojan horse, you know. We trick you into watching right. a funny magic show and then hopefully, uh, you know, uh, crack in there a little bit of humanity and you kind of leave, you know, hopefully thinking about the message just as much as the magic. Well, they're fantastic narratives. I like the different settings that were from like the Echo Park looking to indoors and the food courts, and you really take advantage of the different scenery. They're only half-hour episodes, but you're putting in about five to six illusions in each one. That's got to be a lot of prep work for a half-hour show. How much time goes into putting an episode together? Oh, it's a lot. I mean, (laughs) if you count the you know, quote unquote tricks per minute, you know, like uh, average on an episode, we might have 15 to 20, you know, tricks that happen. Some are smaller things on the streets, magic for Susan's trick questions. Some are kind of bigger 
bigger things like levitating goat yoga or making a guy believe he's invisible. We basically take it. It's about a year from beginning to end from when we start writing for three months to then inventing and creating all the magic that we wrote for about two more months. And then we shoot for two months and then we edit for four months. And I think that totals about 12. Uh, it's a, it's a (laughs) grueling, you know, long process and it's very much a team effort. You know, like I've put together a team of, you know, the, my favorite funniest people, plus uh, some of the smartest magicians that I've known my whole life. And it's really, it's a blast because magic is hard. And when you can pull it off, it is really, really rewarding. And I'll, I'll often catch myself when something feels like, oh, this is going to be an easy one. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of caution myself to realize, like, I think you should look again. It should never be easy, you know, and often <laughs> I'll figure out right? like, what I overlooked. Yeah. I like it. Well, and you, you've come up with some great segments. You alluded to your uh, Susan one, uh, Magic for Susan. Absolutely hilarious. When you brought on Susan Sarandon was like the best day ever for me because I love her. Uh, talk about how bits like that come together for you. I think that's just imaginative as hell. You know, it's like when we're writing the show, it's very much, uh, you know, we, we encourage – it's kind of like me and four or five other guys and gals, and we're kind of – very much, it's very much a free flowing thing, and, and you kind of get comfortable enough that you know you're saying good ideas, you're saying bad ideas, it doesn't matter, you know, it's just because you kind of can ping pong them around the room. And we, we realized, like, oh, we need to have I really wanted to have these little short segments, bumpers, I call them, that break up the longer ones, just because I know I'm an ADD Netflix viewer, and, uh, and I know there's a lot of them out there, you're competing with everything that's ever been made ever you need to make sure that, 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 that no one reaches for the remote, you know, and I feel like a show should flow right. like candy. And one of the, one of the guys had an idea. He's like, what if we do magic for Susan's? I'm like, what is, what is that? And he's like, just, you do magic only for women named Susan. I'm like, put it on the board. Uh, kind of thinking like, well, that's silly. We'll beat that. We'll come up with something better. Uh, never did. Thankfully. Uh, <laughs> And when we're, when we're shooting the show, you know, we put an ad on Craigslist looking for Susan's. We'll show up for 20 bucks and a free lunch. And uh, Susan's are a unique breed of characters. Uh, there's, they're, they're all kind of, you see a Susan, and you're like, yeah, that's definitely a Susan. You know, Susan's, uh, they, they you glad don't. you didn't pick a Karen. That would have been a whole oh, new concept thank God. in today's world. Magic for Karen's, I don't <laughs> Can want to. Can you imagine? I don't want to. Can you imagine? She stopped me midway. Oh She's like, okay, now wait, it's up your sleeve. Okay, and I'm not putting a mask on. And I'm glad, yeah, we dodged the bullet there. But um, so, you know, Magic for Seasons ended up being like this just, you know, fun little quirky thing that people loved. So when we were getting together for season two, I I was like, we kind of, I mean, we have to get the most famous Susan, Susan Sarandon. I made made a big picture of Susan Sarandon from Thelma and Louise Awe, my desktop wallpaper on my computer, kind of like my vision board, you know. Like, I was like, let's nice. see if the secret works. And, put, and, you know, it turns out, like, somebody who works on the show, went to high school with Susan Sarandon's son. He is a big fan of the show. He talked his mom into doing it. She'd never even seen the show. She didn't even know she was showing up for that day. She just loves her son and did what, did what she, he said would be funny to do. And it was a very surreal uh, moment. It's, it's proof that dreams come true. There you go. I love that. Well, like I said, all the segments work from there to trick questions to close-up magic. Talk about, I mean, let's go back into that now. Um, we're in post-COVID now or, or mid-COVID, and thank goodness we didn't do it, Karen. Close-up magic has 
a whole new connotation. You are known for putting things in your mouth, my friend. I mean, Jackson's got a lot to look forward to with you. <laughs> yeah. What what's look, things look like going forward here? You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, as I watch season three back, because we shot season three maybe in August, September, and uh, it's amazing how much you just take for granted about how trusting people are with letting you into their right. personal space giving you their phones for a trick or money or whatever. And, you know, obviously how often for some reason I put stuff in my mouth for tricks. I don't know what my thing is. I don't know. <laughs> my mouths are magical. I don't know. Uh, I think it, it, it will require some adaptation moving forward. You know, close-up magic, I think, maybe will evolve into uh, far away magic, you know, where instead of being two inches that from someone's face, I, I, I like could be uh, two, two football fields away. And, you know, I think uh, – I think everyone is aware that how things work is going to have to change for the next year or two. And I think as long as you do it with a little tongue in cheek and a little comedy, uh, I think everything will work out. Okay. And then hopefully before we know it, we'll be back to close up magic. I'll be back to putting stuff in my mouth. Everyone will be happy. There you go. Good plan. I like it. And speaking of COVID and magic, we have to talk about the social distancing starter kit you've put together. Such a great idea. And I, I love the whole premise of it. Tell my listeners about this uh, magician starter kit you've created. Well, you know, early quarantine, um, I realized it just kind of came to me. I was like, man, this is a great time for people to learn a new skill, to take on a new hobby, you know, because I know for me, when I learned magic, it was very much a kind of social, solitary, socially solitary thing where I was kind of in my room practicing card tricks or doing stuff in front of the mirror. And it kind of requires that a little bit. And, um, and I also wanted to do something for COVID relief for the first responders, the healthcare workers, uh, everyone who's kind of struggling. So I put together a uh, social distancing magician starter kit with 10 of my favorite tricks that I started my career with. I shot a bunch of instructional videos uh, in my house in quarantine um, that I put on a secret website that you get when you get this kit. And the proceeds go to uh, directrelief.org, and uh, you can get them on my website, justinwillman.com. And it's good for, you know, kids age 6 to 96. Not above, no one above 96, though. It's not appropriate. All right, all right. You have to have standards <laughs> and cutoff dates. I understand that. No problem. Mm -hmm. All righty. Well, I'm so glad you did it, and I wasn't – I mean, I look at the picture first, and you can't really tell by the picture that if uh, – is it the little cotton balls in the small cups you used to get when you were six years old, or then I saw your video. It's a big box of stuff. You got some – you have to have some cool things in there. Well, that's the thing. You know, like I went through a lot of magic kits when I was a kid, and, you know, a lot of the kits have maybe a good trick or two and then a bunch of junk, you know, that kind of breaks or right. – not not good or quality so i handpicked 10 of the i mean the the best ones you know some really good ones and what i love is i get i get these uh instagram dm videos almost daily of parents videoing their kids doing magic tricks over facetime and zoom and you know a brother put on a show for the whole family or these you know little girls doing a, a sister duo act and i just i love it you know just just the idea of kind of creating more magicians and you know, I think even if you don't have to, like, take up magic to professional, I just feel like it, it, it is kind of a – for kids, it's a confidence booster. But I think for adults, like, everyone at some point, whether you admit it or not, like, 
was very intrigued by magic and maybe you just never took the time or you kind of maybe thought it was dorky, but like magic's awesome. And being able to have a trick up your sleeve for whether you're, you know, you're on a, you're on a, you're out in the world on a, on a random first date, or you're just trying to break the ice uh, at a business meeting, or you're just trying to like entertain some drunk buddies. Like magic is just a great thing to have up your sleeve. So it's, it's nice to put that out in the world. There you go. Well said. And that's got to be rewarding as hell to see those videos. I mean, I remember back in the day, I told you off air, I grew up in Southern California and my, every year we would get to go to Disneyland. It had to be bank day. My dad worked for a bank and that's the only day we could afford to go on bank day, but we would go Uh to bank day and I would save up all year long because Disney had the best magic shop on main street back in the day. And I honestly haven't lived there in so long. I don't know if it's still there. But I would save up for a trick each year, and magic is just a, a important part of I think any kid growing up. So it's just gotta be amazing that. to yeah, see these Main videos Street, coming in. Main Street Magic, Main Street Magic, I believe it is still there, and that's famously where Steve Martin uh, first worked at Disneyland because he he got his start as a magician. And uh, I mean, some of my happiest childhood memories are going into magic shops, you know, with my parents and just having my mind blown, and then. You know, uh, when my birthday rolls around, getting getting that trick that I really, really wanted. You know, it's just a, a beautiful part of my youth. That's awesome. And talk about giving back. I don't know if you still do it, but I know you were uh, the magic director and was on the board of directors for Magic Aid. Is that still a thing in New York? That is still a thing. Magic Aid is a program where uh, child life specialists uh, at, you know, kind of basically hospitals all over the country where there are kids who are who are there either for short term or long term dealing with different illnesses who go in and do magic room to room bedside. Uh, it's a, basically the program trains child life specialists uh, some basic magic tricks and also how to teach some basic magic tricks. So these kids who are who are in hospitals and kind of you know away from friends and don't see their families as much as they should and kind of have limited things to do and entertain themselves. Uh, just kind of like how we were talking about a second ago with the quarantine magic kids, it's a great way for kids to get confidence, uh, use dexterity, uh, mental focus, kind of performance chops, and also just make kids smile. You know, kids who kind of have the short end of the stick for whatever reason, uh, put a smile on their face when, you know, you wouldn't think they have something to smile about is is a beautiful thing. Awesome. Good on you, dude, for that. I like it. Now, usually entertainment, magic, all these communities are relatively a, a close-knit community. Um, who would you like to create a trick for? Who would you like to have create a trick for you, maybe? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, Penn and Teller have always, as soon as I was old enough as a teenager to appreciate how special Penn and Teller were, they, they've always been a real inspiration to me, and you know, I've met them both on varied occasions, but I would love to work with them at some point. That would be really cool. Uh, and, you know, to do a little, uh, you know, a magic jam in a vice versa capacity, something for them, something for me would be really, really cool. I love Steve Martin. It would be great to collaborate with him. He's, he's kind of a hero from the very, very beginning. And, you know, they, they, they say don't meet your heroes, but I hear everyone who's encountered Steve Martin walks away quite quite pleased and satisfied. So, uh, you know, that would be a real bucket list thing. Nice. I'm sensing a new screensaver coming on. I like it. Oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) There you go. The magic screensaver vision board. 
Very cool. And let's kind of finish up talking about, um, well, I want to, we'll finish up with your goals and what you have planned ahead, but let's talk about your son Jackson a bit. It's got to be amazing to be able to do this for him. And are you ever afraid that it's going to eventually jade him to magic or you think it'll keep spurring him on that he sees the trick so many times he's going to go, I know how that's done. How do you, how do you, plan to teach magic to your kid and keep the magic alive throughout his lifetime well you know it's funny I, I've, I've been doing these videos uh past few months where it's quarantine magic lessons where i'm trying to teach him a trick and you know he's he is uh unamused unimpressed the magic doesn't register and he hilariously just ruins <laughs> every trick and I, I you know listen i think it's tough i'm not going to force magic upon him i feel like um he will probably naturally become a little bit desensitized to the wonder of the tricks. You know, when I got married and, you know, uh, my wife and I are living together and she kind of sees tricks in their early form because she's kind of my guinea pig and very often sees how some things work. And once, once you know how a trick works, you can never, you can never not know how it works. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer. So there are certain things that, you know, and she, this is with her, with demanding is to not know how everything works. It's kind of nice to still have some things that are mysteries so I think with Jack, I will, I'll have to exercise some self-control to, uh, to pace myself and not, uh, <laughs> you know, not, not burn him out on everything all at once. Uh, and we'll there see, you, you know, if he, if he chooses to pursue magic, uh, great. But if he chooses something else, uh, maybe even better. We'll see. There you go. Interest change. I mean, I saw that he was much more interested than the ear pods and the, than the magic trick box there. <laughs> I mean, he should be. Listen. AirPods, I mean, when they first came out, I think we all were like, well, those look ridiculous. What what kind of idiot will wear those? Cut cut to three months later, I'm popping mine in. Uh, Go figure. Humans are weird. (laughs) I'm telling you. Well, let's talk about the the plan here. Fingers crossed there's no reason there shouldn't be a season four of Magic for Humans. What else do you have up your sleeve, so to speak? Well, you know, I'd love to do some, some TV hosting uh, in, in the off time, kind of return to those roots. So uh, there's a few irons in the fire in that regard. I've also been, um, been, for the past year, working on this animated series based on my life as a kid teenage magician, uh, kind of like, you know, in the Bob's Burger style, but just of the awkward 14-year-old uh, magician struggling to fit in that I think would be a really funny cartoon. So hopefully that uh, that catches fire. But, you know, right now with the state of the world, especially in show business, we're all just kind of just waiting it out. You know, it's all kind of hypothetical until you can get back to business. So it's a good time to jot those ideas down, brainstorm. And, and, and then I think more, more importantly, live, live your life, spend time with your family, hopefully keep busy enough to keep the bills paid. Um, and we'll all look back on this time in a couple of years, I hope. And, uh, and and just uh, be pat ourselves on the back that we got through it. There you go. Well said. I can't wait to see the cartoon version. I don't think we've had a good magician in a cartoon forever. Last time I think was the bad guy in Frosty the Snowman. I can't think of anyone. So that's, that's a true great concept. I love it. Long overdue. Very yeah. very cool. I like it. Well, Justin Wilman, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you today. Um, if guys, if you have nothing to do, I suggest you order this kit. It's going to help people with COVID-19 
And as I said, we've had a million views on YouTube of your amazing magic. Tell everyone where they can find you and your social media, my friend. I'm on Instagram at Justin Willman, uh, Twitter, Justin underscore Willman. I'm on Facebook too. And then, uh, you know, I'll be back on tour maybe by the end of the year, definitely throughout 2021. And there's nothing better than coming to see the magic in person. So uh, all my tour dates are at justinwillman.com. That's where you can buy the kit as well. And at the very least, if you run out of things to binge and you haven't watched Magic for Humans, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Check it out. There you go. Netflix is our friend, boys and girls. Color me there at the next concert I can see in my area, Justin. Thanks so much for coming on the Left of Straight show, my friend. Thank you so much. This was fun. Stay on the line for me, Justin. Guys, we're going to play out a little bit of music here. I'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. different story people saying that you're no good for me so you love her with another he's making a fool of you oh if you love me baby you deny it but you laugh and tell me i should try it tell me i'm a baby
All right, everybody, we are back. That was our good friend Tommy Atkins with his version of George Michael's Freedom. And speaking of freedom, my next guest is an author and speaker who's taking his earlier trials and tribulations, have used those experiences to challenge and help inspire other men in our LGBT community in improving their own lives. And that is what freedom means to me. He's used experiences in different modalities, such as the 12-step program, nonviolent communication, meditation, talk therapy, and more in his commitment to building a personal practice of self-discovery that he then shares with other gay men. He's the author of the new book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life, which was released just this week. I'm happy to have him on the show, so please welcome for the very first time to Left to Straight Show, Mr. Britt East. Britt, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on, and congratulations on the book going out this week. That's amazing. Oh, yes, I appreciate that. It has been two decades in the making, so I am so excited to share it with the world. You should be, my friend, and thank you so much for an advanced copy. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot, and we're going to go all into it. But first, tell me how you're doing. You're up in uh, Washington State there near ground zero for COVID. With everything happening around the book release, how are you holding up? Have you made it through the last few months pretty good? You know, I am so fortunate and privileged. I've worked from home for years, and so does my husband, and um, so we're huddled together in the suburbs in our tiny little house with our crazy dog, and we're doing just great. We're we're really lucky, but my heart just aches for all the people out there suffering from this horrible disease. I, you know, it's just, man, the times we live in, they're just real tough. It is something brand new for all of us. That is for sure, yeah. my friend. Yeah. yeah Let's sure. start with a little background, and we're going to talk about it because the book goes into it. It's kind of rough, but tell me at least where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you. Let's not go into other circumstances yet. You know, I grew up in Tennessee in the 1980s, um, and I'm 46 years old. And, you know, the, the, one of the things that I think about that, that binds us all together as gay men is you can kind of guess at some of the experiences of a gay man based on where he grew up and when he grew up. And, and I definitely fell into that mold growing up kind of in the shadow of the height of the AIDS epidemic in, in southeastern part of the U.S. And I was a really um, lonely, quiet kid. And ex- but on, on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was also kind of a brat and a class clown. I loved to make people <laughs> laugh. And I was always kind of, I was always in trouble with the teachers. I mean, always being sent to the principal's office for mouthing off in class and being kind of a cut up and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Goodness gracious. All righty. And talk a little bit about your coming out experience. What I would like to know is when did you first come out to yourself and when do you think you finally found your tribe? When did you first uh, get accepted or you accept the LGBTQ community? I was one of those guys who knew early on that I was attracted to other guys. I had no sense of gay culture because where I grew up, that was never mentioned there was certainly right. a vibrant gay community. I grew up in Nashville, and there was a because of the entertainment industry, there was a vibrant gay community. But it's not like I had any access to it as a kid or knew anything about it. And and like most of us as as gay youth, I grew up without any gay mentors. And 
or, or modeling or anything like that. Um, but I did know really early on that I was attracted um, um, to other boys. And um, But, you know, I, I started the coming out process officially sharing that with the world when I was 18 or 19 in college. And that's when I started to start to find my tribe and, you know, the gay student union kind of thing. And I, I don't even know if they still have those. But back when I was in college, um, you know, that was at least a, a meeting place for other gay people on campus. And, and so I started to find people then. But I was still profoundly broken at that time through all I had experienced. So I wasn't mm. the greatest friend. Um, I tried my best, but I just wasn't I didn't have all the life skills to be the greatest friend. But that's that's really when I started to try my find my tribe and come into my own was in college. Well, let's start to go through this because, like I said, the book is equal part some great life lessons and equal part memoir here. Um, we've all kind of found through growing up or different ways. I want to hear a little bit more about yours. We'll go a little deeper than what we talked about earlier because you had uh, the non-acceptance of the homophobia by your parents, a uh, little neglect and everything, and it kind of led up to some tragic circumstances right before you started college. Talk about those kind of early years and what that was like for you. Yeah, I just, I feel like I grew up in oblivion. Like there was nobody and there was nothing. I had the dual trauma of living in the bigoted South um, and also the family abuse that I experienced. And it was just a really tragic cocktail. So that means that I had no foundation or sense of self. Uh, there, I grew up without any wisdom, without any culture, and no rites of passage. Mm. When you think as straight people or even as gay people growing up in loving homes, all the traditions that are passed down and conferred upon you from your family, all the support, I had none of that, or at least nothing that I was able to experience and internalize. So I learned to be a fighter early on, like a lot of gay men. I learned to take care of myself and maybe hide behind masks. Um, certainly while I was closeted, but even after the closet, learning to be overly self-sufficient. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to to learn how to ask for help and reach out to others. In fact, that was really kind of thrust upon me, like you alluded to, um, after a suicide attempt um, in, in my early days of college. And I found myself in the care of the university mental health system. And that was kind of where I first learned how to lean on others um, because they certainly did not care about my sexual orientation. So I was at least safe in that regard to start to tell my story and accept help from others. Gotcha. What, I mean, was it avert um, kind of homophobia from your parents or was it more psychological? Was it more physical? What was, what was that upbringing like that kind of led to so much of that damage that you had to go through? There were two strains. Um, one was the homophobia, which was just good old-fashioned gay bashing. Nothing um, outlandish. It, it was kind of gay bashing we, a lot of us in those days, just kind of normalized and grew up with. That made it real clear that it was that everything about me was wrong. That I was hmm. not okay as I was, and I had to hide, or I would be shamed, or beaten, or killed. I literally thought that I would be unemployed, that there would be no spot for me in society and that I would be an outcast. There was no gay, there was no culture when I grew up that I was aware of, so I thought I was alone, like so many gay kids. And then the other strand of the abuse had nothing to do with my sexual orientation. The other strand of the abuse was just intergenerational trauma that had been absorbed and weaponized 
for years by all members of my family, multiple levels of addiction, um, neglect, um, physical abuse, psychological abuse, spiritual abuse, just at every level. So we were all just kind of fending for ourselves. There was no family unit Mm. or tribe. Gotcha. Wow, that's so rough. And was the... Was the homophobia towards you in specific or just in generally just the feeling around it that you obviously knew that you had to keep yourself closeted inside of yourself? It was not specific to me. Um, Like a lot of parents, there was a family, uh, there was all sorts of denial. It was everything that was left Mm. unsaid and unspoken. The the homophobia was really directed at the world, which was an implicit threat to me. So it wasn't like them calling me names um, in particular, but it was them making demonstrable, explicit comments about gay people in the world, in the media at large, or if somebody was effeminate, or there were gay people in my family that were kind of um, estranged and kind of pushed off to the side and made fun of behind their backs. And all of that was really clearly done for my benefit, but not personally directed at me. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Now talk about, you said you, you, after the suicide attempt, you kind of felt you were first able to start talking to people in college there when you started to get your first bit of help. But it's kind of uh, you found other ways. We talk talk about where you found the twelve step program. Talk about this metamorphosis and the different steps that you took to get towards where you are today. Well, I was really lucky in that I had a traumatic experience that obliterated my life. And I, what I mean is, I was with a partner for years and years in my early twenties. Um, my first serious monogamous relationship, but because I had no foundation and I was not yet a whole person, I was completely codependent, meaning I just had an excessive reliance on him to meet all of my needs. And so even though he was my age, I made him be my guide and my mentor and my teacher, which was just so unfair. And at some point, even though we had this beautiful relationship, at some point he disclosed that, um, well, he didn't disclose, he was actually arrested for having sex with a minor which was completely Mm -hmm. shocking to me. Um, And um, through that process disclosed that he was having all sorts of sex with all sorts of guys, and it was a full-fledged sexual addiction. And this was back before that term was actually used that much. So I had no concept of what that term even meant. I knew addiction to be stuff with alcohol and drugs. I had never heard the combination of sex and addiction in the same sentence before, so it never occurred to me. And it leveled my life. But because I had no sense of self, I was completely desperate, alone, and afraid, so I stayed with them. Not out of altruism or forgiveness, but out of desperate longing. But together, we entered the 12-step program, he for sex addiction and me for codependency to sex addiction. And that's when I first started to get real, to start to get real in front of this group of benevolent witnesses in these rooms, sitting in a circle, telling their story, finally setting down my mask. I learned the thrill of togetherness, and that's really what changed my life, that it was completely annihilated through this horrible traumatic event, and then somehow he and I were able to love each other into a space of recovery. Eventually, we separated, but we actually remain friends to this day. In fact, our husbands are friends with each other. So it's a really, it's a testament to love over a lifetime. And I'm so lucky that I'm fortunate that I that you know we had each other and could 
could move past addiction and into recovery so that I could then build the life of my dreams. And I moved from 12 steps into um, yoga and Buddhism and meditation and nonviolent communication, all these other things that I, um, you know, when my recovery set my soul on fire, all these different avenues that I could find in the expression of my personal growth and development. And that, that started 20 years ago. And that's when I say the book has really been 20 years in the making. That's really what I mean, that I have this 20 years of wisdom that I now want to share this experience, strength, and hope that I want to share with gay men around the world so they don't have to make the same mistakes I did. That's amazing. And I want to kind of correlate it to some of the times we're living through right now, and I'll start by bringing it back to that time because I remember reading in the book that when they were the police were going to contact or trying to get a hold of your then boyfriend, you kind of had a pretty rough experience with them yourself, right? It's, uh, and was that due to you think because of the nature of the homophobia? You, I guess they thought you were him at first, but did it change after they found out it wasn't or did because of they knew it was a man on man kind of thing that they kind of put you in the same lump, I guess. Oh yeah. It was completely bigoted. Um, and they made that real clear. They, I was so naive. I knew nothing about the world. I was so unprepared to live an adult life in this world, looking back on it. They used a classic ruse where they, they hit my intercom and, and said they were UPS, and they had a package for my partner's name, and, and they needed me to sign for it. So I buzzed them up. And when, I, um, when they knocked on the door, they forced their way in and started to grill me thinking that I was him because I had said that I was um, thinking they were this delivery person. So once I kind of produced identification and, and um, made it clear that I was not, that I was not my partner, um, they, they, they understood, they believed me, but the violence did not stop. That's when they started to make threats. When they started, you know, one of the policemen asked me if I'd ever been hit, really, really been hit. And um, that while the other one ransacked our apartment, I think part of it was the mm-hmm. nature of the crime, which was really serious right. and is really salacious and comes with all sorts of energy and stigma to it. And another part of it was also um, the homophobia and the, and the stigma attached to our relationship just because we were gay. But they definitely made it clear that was bigoted. They were threatening and, and they were definitely abusive. Nothing like we've seen on TV. Um, um, in some of the recent cases, but it was still traumatic. Right. And, I, and I just think about all the traumatic incidents at the hands of the police that so many different communities experience every day that are unrecorded, that go untold, all these secrets that just kind of get squirreled away in the back of our minds because we don't want to think of them. It's so critical that we start to tell these stories with safe people so that we can reclaim our sense of empowerment. Gotcha. No, very well said. Thank you for sharing that part. I appreciate it. Now, yeah. we're talking about you first kind of starting to come together with this in the 12 step with your then boyfriend at the time. Talk about your steps from there. And when did you first start to realize this is going to be maybe your calling later on? Was it relatively early on or when when did this kind of aha moment that you can help other people begin? You know, I fought it every step of the way. I I knew that something happened to me in those 12 step meetings. I was changed, like almost on like on a cellular level that those meetings lit my soul on fire. 
and I, and I found my voice for the very first time. It's like I met myself for the first time, or maybe I became a different person. But, you know, I still had bills to pay. So like a lot of folks, I, I had these dreams. I had this sense of wonder and this passion and power, but I didn't know how to make it a reality. So over the intervening years, I continued a corporate career in, in digital marketing, which I, which I still have today. And it took me a long time to realize, like, I can even use that. I can use every facet of my, of my life to give back to our community. There are lots of guys out there who have not had the fortune and privileges that I have had. You know, I got, I got a full scholarship to one of the best business schools in the country. I'm so friggin' grateful for that. So I really, I feel inspired to, to, to leverage all that I learned and as part of that MBA and to pay it forward, to share it with everybody that I can. So in this book, I have all sorts of information about navigating your career, applying for jobs, um, side hustles, volunteer work, also financial planning, all the stuff that I learned in business school. I just want to, it's like I want to be the big brother for gay men around the world who maybe never had that and, and who could use a little, could use a little real talk and, 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 and wisdom and unvarnished, you know, advice and, and recommendations. I love that. And we are going to go into the book a little deeper. I mean, you do have some amazing, as you said, all these different categories that you're talking to uh the chapters are amazing 10 chapters body mind spirit of course career finances family friends sex community and service work i'm glad all those were included we're going to talk about each of those but talk about um therapy a bit as you said you kind of went through some of this and you recommend it highly for others tell me why you think it's such i've had a lot of people say it's a great thing to do i've had some people say I don't need that stuff. Talk to me about what you find um, good in therapy, how it's helped you, and why you recommend it to others. Yeah. You know, first and foremost, I think everyone should do whatever friggin' works. Trial and error to figure out what works for you. You got to know who you are. You got to experiment, get curious, and then kind of monitor the results um, as you go through this process. Like you said, some people love therapy. Some people hate it. Do what works for you. I happen to love it. Clearly, I love the sound of my own voice. So here I'm paying somebody to listen to me, <laughs> you know, talk. I mean, what's, what's not to love? But th- there is stuff that therapy, in my experience, does not give you. So the, ther- the kind of therapy that I've always gone to, and I, I still have a wonderful therapist that I see uh, to this day, is more about building a relationship that is rock solid and based on really tight boundaries. And in those boundaries, it creates a container where you can um, be all of yourself and maybe a way that you fear to be in your, your most intimate relationships in the real world, certainly your professional relationships. So it's a really sacred space, and it's a great place to talk and be seen and known, and, and your therapist holds your story, which is magic. It does not always lead to the most, um, you know, the, the, the most self-actualized, life-changing decisions, and that's what I, I have gotten from a life coach. Um, so I've also worked with life coaches. In fact, my life coach was the one who first convinced me to write this book. And I found this brilliant guy over the internet and I've worked with him for a couple of years. And he, unlike a therapy, which is much more about being joined in my story and joined in the feelings, my life coach is a more like, 
um, a taskmaster, frankly, a bully, somebody to work with and say, like, okay, what are your hopes and dreams? What do you want to accomplish? And how do we get you there? And then every session you check in on your progress. So you better have done your homework. Otherwise, you feel like a fool. Whereas your therapy is more like being heard in your experience over the intervening days, what's happened and being joined in that. So I think they work in concert with one another really well. I think they complement each other. But, you know, maybe I'm just a geek. The main thing is find what works for you and do that. Don't let anybody else tell you different. I love that. Very, very nice. Well, let's talk about this a bit. Let's go through some of the things. Um, Body, mind, and spirit, very important to us. What are some of the pitfalls that us as gay men are finding and what are some of the mindfulness practices that you're trying to get across in those three areas? Boy, this gets to the heart of it. (laughs) You know, uh, we gay men have been put through the ringer and we have to start with the harm. We have to start with the fact that, you know, we did not invent the closet. We did not invent the bigotry of homophobia and the consequences are real and profound. And we have to start by acknowledging that. We have to take our loved ones aside, look them in the eyes and ask them if they understand the cost of their bigotry. And that's a really serious, loving conversation. You will bring your straight loved ones to their knees when you ask them to hold the consequences of the way they have harmed you. That is, that is absolutely critical. Um, but then we have to take charge of our lives. We have to go make amends and apologize and clean up after our messes so that we can construct the life that we were always meant to have with, with homophobia never to have existed. So when it comes to body, mind, and spirit, you see the bigotry playing all over our lives um, when we engage in um, body shaming of other gay men, when we, when we engage in the beauty myth, that the beauty myth that is culturally contrived that says only white men of a certain age and certain build are quote-unquote beautiful. When we participate in that lie, we are harming ourselves and everyone around us. So right. my, my advice in the book is to figure out what is – to encourage the readers to figure out what is healthy for you and be relentlessly pragmatic about achieving it. What body do you feel best serves you? But believe me when I tell you there is nothing spiritual in this world without the body. There is no spirituality separate from the body. Whether you're Catholic or Quaker or Buddhist or atheist, it doesn't matter. We all have bodies, so we have to start there. We have to start with what we're putting in our body, how we're utilizing our body, how we're taking care of it and nurturing it. This is not about being pretty. This is about being healthy and well. And then once we get our body under control and start to get clean from whatever um, junk we're putting into our body, whether it's drugs, alcohol, nicotine, or processed food, or trans fats, or whatever it may be, once we start to get some clean time, that is time to get clean with our minds. And sometimes that involves Um, correcting neurochemical issues with medication prescribed by a professional psychiatrist, Um, or sometimes involves the the stopping of any self-medicating we're doing with drugs, alcohol, or anything like that. But we have to reach some stabilization point where our neurochemistry is solid and stable. Um, And then, then it's time for spirituality. How can we connect with something larger than ourselves? Very separate than religion. It's about knowing our place in the universe, where we fit in, what is uniquely us, and what kind of experience do we want to have and share with the larger world? 
Very well said. I love that. And one of the things I really like about this book, too, is, and you even say it, that it is geared towards our um, gay men, but these are universal things, right? Everyone has some kind of a predisposition yeah. of whether you are gay, whether you're it's racial, whether it's religious, whether it's because you're fat, whether it's because you're short. There's universal truths that are involved here, and I really like how you kind of give away that it's going to work towards everybody. So I think that's amazing. Uh, and talk about um, the betterment of themselves as far as career and finances. What do you try to touch on in there? and What's the importance of those two areas? Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. You know, I, I did a subtle thing when I named the book. It's called A Gay Man's Guide to Life. It's not called A Guide to Life for Gay Men because exactly what you said so well. And the, the concepts are really universal. The recommendations would apply to anybody. And I approach them through my lived experience as a gay man. And I make no bones about it that I'm writing to gay men because they deserve it, because they haven't gotten to hear this in a lot of cases. They were never told or educated in these things in a lot of ways. So when it comes right. to career and finances, for example, I explicitly talk through, you know, empathize with the bigotry we have all experienced at the hands of hiring managers or HR managers or our bosses as we navigate our career. But I don't stop there. That's where we start. I stop where, where I continue is um, with specific recommendations on how to help you find a career, not just a job, down to very nitty-gritty recommendations around writing a cover letter around your resume, what to expect on your first, second, third interviews, how to negotiate a salary, how do you negotiate a raise. I take you all through that. I, you know, I, because of the gift of my 20-year corporate career, I have a lot of experience hiring and firing people, working with large multi-billion-dollar corporations. And so I'm trying to leverage that experience to help these readers who maybe haven't had that benefit yet uh, avoid some of the mistakes that I've made. Um, you are going to experience bigotry in your career if you're a gay man. There's no way around that. Just like women experience misogyny and, and people of other races experience racism, there's just no way around it. We swim in a sea of stigma, and we have to acknowledge it and learn to rise above it and lift each other up, but there's no denying it. You need not be a victim, however. You can learn, you can learn some basic skills and get empowered. With regards to finances, the same thing is applicable. You have to first know yourself. Not everybody is meant to start their own business or meant to be a real estate investor or, or invest in the stock market. You know, we all have different aptitudes and affinities, different strengths and weaknesses. You first got to do the hard work of getting to know yourself. What gets you excited? What makes you bored? What scares you? What makes you, you know, what makes you feel inspired? And then go have an adventure. But to really take charge of your personal finances, um, if you're in debt, how to get out of debt, um, especially if it is unsecured debt through a credit card how to use financial leverage to make more money. I get into the really nitty-gritty details no matter where you are in your financial planning, um, no matter if you want to be fully financially independent or you just want to be debt-free, I walk you through all of that. I love that. That's so great. And a lot of people, I mean, that's one thing, just like you said, just for everyone in general, not just LGBT, but you don't learn these things. And so many LGBT kids are kicked out of the house and things like that and have no experience whatsoever how to handle money or finances. And they don't teach that in school really at all anymore. So exactly. it's such an important topic. I love that. Um, yeah. Let's yeah. talk about the family and friends section. What are you trying to impart 
in that area, and what do you hope people's takeaways from there are? Yeah, you know, I, I, I start each chapter with the harm because that's how you build authenticity, and, and I don't sugarcoat anything. We have had a lot of harm at the hands of our family. And like I said earlier, it's so critical on the way to self-empowerment that we acknowledge that. Not to blame, not to shame, but to get real. You know, whether or not you confront your family is your business, but you got to get real. You, you know, nobody raises their kids to be gay, even the most well-meaning parents. And even the, even the most well-meaning parents have family programming that we have to go in and deprogram. So if your parents were not overtly or explicitly homophobic, that's wonderful. There's still issues because they're human. And so we have to go back right. and figure out, okay, where were, where, what are our core wounds? How can we address our core woundedness so that we might better love ourselves and eventually each other? What I find with families, there's so much unsaid, so many covert contracts, so many implicit agreements. If you do this, then I'll do that. And if those are violated, then all hell breaks loose. So I think it's important to shine the light. You know, that sunlight is the best disinfectant cliche. To shine the light and get real, get honest with each other about the rules of, you know, what do, what do we require of one another as family members? We're going to walk together for a lifetime, but what do we require of one, of one another? And then when it, becomes, when it comes to friendships, what can we expect of our friends? You know, when you're not in your 20s, most friends don't just get together and hang out anymore. We're too busy. We're too tired. People need a nap. Right. I mean, it's like you don't just get together like you did in the college dorm with your friends when you're in your 40s. So to have realistic expectations around what's healthy in a friendship, most of us get together to share things we love or past shared experiences or hobbies or passions or interests. But overall, to have a giggle, we want to laugh. We want to have a little lightheartedness in this world. Life right now is so challenging um, with everything that's going on in the world. And so our friends, we want to lighten each other's load. And where I see people go wrong in friendships is when they try to make their friends their therapists, when they try to offload their, their, um, you know, their problems or their friends or seek free counsel. And what I tell people is if they're going to go down, down that route to, to literally set a timer you know, if somebody comes to me for advice, it's like, if they're my friend, it's like, okay, you get five minutes, you know, and then we're going to do something fun. Because it's like, you know, that friendship is not about flipping on life's light switches. It's about loving each other and having a laugh. And so mm -hmm. once we can level set our expectations around what we require in a friend, then we can delight in each other's presence more, regardless of our walk of life, regardless of our race, our ethnicity, our, our income level. We have to learn to set all of that aside and rise above it and delight in each other's togetherness. There you go. Well said on that. Well, the next chapter is sex. And I got to admit, I didn't want to read that because I didn't have the time. And I want to delve deeply anything titled that. What are your takeaways <laughs> for that chapter? Um, you know, like every chapter, you got to know yourself. So when it comes to sex, so many of us are divorced from our sense of desire. What do we really want? What do we really like? And, um, you know, the opposite end of that extreme, of course, is, is we cultivate secret fetishes that we ritualize and, and, and hide from the world. So many of us mm. prefer pornography to people, would rather live in some Instagram fantasy than in reality. Reality is messy. Right. Bodies are messy. People are messy. And we have to, excuse me, we have to learn to delight in each other's messiness. That is where the richness 
of relationship lies is in our mistakes, is in our, our, those moments when we look a little silly or do something foolish. So when it comes to right. that, we have to stop limiting ourselves, set down our bigotry of preference. You know, we, we like to guise prejudice as preference, as, as a way to sell ourselves some fantasy that we're not actually participating in, in, in uh, you know, overt racism or, or, uh, or misogyny. But I, I think that there is no homophobia without misogyny. You know, when you see bottom shaming or when you see somebody say no fats or no femmes, I think misogyny right. is at the root of a lot of that, and that internalized homophobia. Once we learn Very how well to said. step into our own power and presence, that's when we can really connect with other people and learn what they desire, step away from just the transactional nature of hooking up and feel more seen and known. Nice. I love that. And finally, we have community and service work, which are two very important topics to myself. Talk about what you hope the takeaways are from those two chapters. This is really the whole point. I mean, there is no point of a spiritual practice if it's not to love other people. There's just no point. It's like if you're going to sit in the cave as some Buddha, who cares? You know, the whole point is to get in there, get into the community um, and share your gifts with the world. And the greatest gift you have is who you are, the sharing of your authentic self. That is the medicine for the world. That is what we need. We need to know each other fully, to be ourselves. That's how we experience togetherness. We don't have to wait until we've mastered all the other topics into the book before we start community service, but we had better be real careful that we are laying that groundwork. Otherwise, we can make a real mess of things. But the point in there is to get selfless, get messy, and get in there. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but get in there and learn how to leverage your gifts to help lift others up. There is so much harm, so much hurt in the world. So many of us just despise one another as Americans. And it's critical that the world needs us. It's critical. And the world needs us as gay men. We are needed and necessary as gay men because we're gay men. So we have gifts to give, not just to the community, but to give to the entire world. And it's important that we figure out who we are. We sharpen our elbows. We, we um, learn how to stand tall and, and, and force our way up to the microphone so we can sing our song. Nice. I like it. Well, goodness gracious, Britt, you've done an amazing book. Again, the book is called A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Get real, stand tall, and take your place. Talk about, do you feel that, I mean, you've been, you've been spending a lot of time in this book for the last year of your life. Do you feel that there is some societal changes coming? I mean, we have so many kids coming out these days at 13, 15, 16. We have young adults going out to straight bars as much as they go out to the gay bars. It's not that kind of community hidden anymore. Do you feel that we are on a good trend at least? Yes. Um, Human history has never seen anything like gay liberation before. Um, We have experienced more positive social change than anything in recorded history, and it is phenomenal. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. And there's also some unintended consequences. Um, The culture, even our community culture, 
has not necessarily been able to absorb all of this change. When you really talk to people about gay marriage, for instance, um, a lot of us don't necessarily have any emotional attunement to the institution. It's kind of curious. Yeah. We grew up, depending on how old you are, you grew up never thinking you could have it. Never, It was beyond our wildest dreams. And so we just did not picture ourselves walking down the aisle, and we just don't know how to act, and we're just kind of winging it. Um, certainly not true for everybody, but for a lot of guys, it's true. I know that's true for me. So um, that's just one example of the way that the world has changed so much, and we're all just struggling to catch up to it. So on the one hand, I'm incredibly hopeful when I see all of the amazing progress in the, the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement and with um, women in the workplace, but I'm also really leery that we've been down these roads before, and there's often been backlashes and setbacks. I don't think it's a straight line, and I think we have to be really honest with that. that there's so much fighting and so much work left to do. Yes, we had a recent huge legal victory, um, you know, with Title VII, and, and that we're, you know, not allowed to be fired for being gay. But the reality right. is anybody can fire anybody for anything, and it requires money and resources to, to engage in any legal resource, uh, recourse. And, um, you know, so it's, it's not like we've changed hearts and minds in the short term with that decision. It just gives us a little more protection. So we need to ensure that Joe Biden gets elected and fight for the Equality Act so we can continue to cement some of these privileges that – that we now enjoy that our that our ancestors didn't. We have a long way to go, but when I look at how fast we've come, how far I am deeply inspired. Exactly, and, and everything you say is so well said because the Title Seven was great. It's great to have these workplace rights, but we still don't have uh, housing rights. We still don't have yeah. some medical rights. Obviously, I mean today. When we're recording this, they are trying to take away all of the Obamacare for anyone that doesn't have health yep. insurance. That's for everybody. In the middle of a pandemic. Exactly. So it's really important that we pay attention because it has been amazing strides in five years. I'm just amazed at the strides we've seen for our, our black community in three months. And they have a long way to go still as well. But I think people are not putting up with being second best anymore. I think yeah, that yeah. something's awakened in people, and I think that's very important. And I think your book really helps speak to that and helps you find your power and where you can be a part of that. So good on you for that, man. Thank you so much. That's all I want to do. All I want to do is help people in our community find their voice so they can get empowered and live the life of their dreams. Very, very nice. Well, we're about out of time here, my friend. I want you to let all my listeners know where they can find your website, where they can find the book, and where they can find you on social media. Absolutely. My website is really the best place to go. It's the hub to find me on all of social media, find my book and everything. And the URL is really easy. It's just my name, Britt East, B as in boy, R-I-T-T-E-A-S-T dot com. Britt East dot com has everything there, free uh, blog, free articles, and then you can buy my book there as well. It'll take you to Amazon where you can purchase. It has all my social media links right on it. So that's really the best place to go. Fantastic. And the hubby giving, giving you a big night out in the town. Are you allowed to go out and social distance uh, in Seattle still? Oh, yeah. He's whining and dining me because we, we just got the hard copies of the book uh, in the mail, the author copies of the publishing company sent to you. We just got those last night. So tonight we're going to go celebrate and paint the town red with our masks on. <laughs> 
There you go.
righty, guys. We are back. That was Nick Metos with See Me. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Thanks so much to our brand-new special correspondent, Jacob Talego, for his Mental Health Minute. To Justin Willman, if you have not seen his Netflix show, Magic for Humans, you have to see it. He's just amazing. And, Brittany, thanks for sharing your book with us. We'll be back tomorrow, guys, with a brand-new episode at 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern. I'll be talking to a great comic, uh, and uh, he'll be sharing his insight. He's also a great producer for another podcast. Mr. Tyler Mead will be on the show tomorrow night. And then uh, Bianca Turner, magnificent artist out of L.A., will be on the show as well. And if it's Friday, it means we're having a Friday Fitness Minute, and Jake Dean Taylor will be coming on as our special correspondent for tomorrow. So see you tomorrow, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern. Have a great night, everyone. Bye-bye.